0: Let's start again. It's my great pleasure to
1: introduce
0: uh, Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Distinguished Professor of Medicine at Emory University, uh, and uh, also the co-director of the Center for AIDS Research at Emory University, as well as a a professor in the Rollins School of Public Health. And he's going to be talking to us about uh, long-term complications from COVID-19. So thank you very much, Carlos, for being here.
1: Thank you, Susan and Paul for the invitation. And uh, I really like Christine's talk. So the first thing I'm going to ask everybody to do is to get up from their chair. You got to do 10 minutes a day. So get 10 times a day. So get sit down and stretch a little bit. because I'm really worried that with, with, uh, uh, with zoom meetings all day, we're just not getting up and, and walking around as much as we should. And that's uh, not good. So I'm going to talk about chronic, uh, long COVID and, uh, let me just start by saying that this is a fairly new topic, so there's a lot of questions and not many answers. And I have no confidence or interest related to this activity. Uh, I'm hoping to to describe the long-term health consequence of COVID, to distinguish post-acute COVID from chronic COVID and to monitor and help you think about monitoring the health impact of COVID in your patients. And I'll start by, uh, by this quote. Uh, Uh, Paul Gardner, who's a professor of epidemiology at the London School of Tropical Medicine, wrote uh, on the the 95th day after the onset of symptoms, I'm unable to be out of bed for more than three hours at a stretch. My arms and legs are permanently fizzing as if injected with Section peppercorns. I have ringing in the ears, intermittent brain fog, palpitations, and dramatic mood swings. And I think this was one of the first descriptions of what we now know as chronic uh, long COVID that really is beginning to think about uh, about the syndrome. After that, there was this article by Ed Young in The Atlantic uh, talking about redefining what this is. And and then uh, uh, Nature had this article about saying, you know, people months after COVID still battling the symptoms. Hmm. And then, you know, talking about this and, and growing numbers of people being uh, long callers of stump stumpage. So the first issue is what is this? And as epidemiologists, uh, we like to have definitions. And I think it's pretty clear that clinicians have observed prolonged sequelae of acute COVID, either persistence of severe symptoms or substantial organ damage. But there has really not been a consensus definition of this. And as you saw, the terms long COVID or long haulers were used. And I'll I'll tell you a a funny story. When I first suggested to the editor of JAMA that I write a viewpoint on long haulers, Uh, on COVID long haulers, he initially thought I was talking about COVID among among, uh, uh, truck drivers. He didn't quite understand what I was talking about until I explained to him what it was. So one of the best data comes actually from this COVID symptom study. And this is an app based study in which over 4,000 people in the US and UK and Sweden have interest symptoms. And there's, you can see now, data suggests that about 10 to 50% of individuals with COVID even mild cases do not recover quickly, if you look at this data. And I showed them out there in Georgia where you can actually get down and really get an idea of who's entering data. This study from CDC was actually very good because this, this was a telephone survey, a random sample of 292 adults who have tested COVID, COVID positive, SARS-CoV positive or PCR, and who were outpatients. And I mentioned this being outpatients because there's a lot of question about, are these symptoms a result of being in the hospital, being in the ICU? So these were all outpatients or ED visits. And they interviewed them a medium 16 days after onset of symptoms. And in 35% of those individuals with a median age of 42.5 years, of which 52% were female, 32% had not returned to the usual state of health. And I think that's a really important thing to know, that one in five adults, previously healthy adults, were not back to the usual health two to three weeks after testing positive for COVID. So this persistence of symptoms occurs regardless of age, comorbid burden, degree of COVID severity of illness. One of the first studies that came out was actually this one from Italy talking about persistent symptoms. They they looked at 145 patients who had been hospitalized in Italy with a median age of 56, and 12% had been in the ICU. And what they saw is fatigue, dyspnea, joint pains were common symptoms. But only 18% of individuals, only 12% of individuals, 18 individuals had no symptoms. The great majority had one or more symptoms and you can see that three, three or more symptoms were present in almost half of them. And in many of them, it was actually impacting their quality of life. This study from France Similarly, looked at, the, and, and try to show that there's no difference between people in the wards and people in the ICU. Again, a telephone survey of 120 hospitalized patients with a median follow-up of 110 days, median age of 63, 75% male, and the most frequent symptoms were fatigue, disney, loss of memory. And again, without not much difference between being in the ICU and being in the wards, even though you can see there that there is some differences People who were in the ward had maybe some other symptoms, more depression compared to people who were in the ICU who had more discomfort and inability to recover their useful activity. And looking at who survives after ICU space, in this study, what they looked at is that physical impairments, primarily joint contractors and muscle wasting, upper extremity sequela as a result of moving you know, from supplying to the prone positions. And diaphragmatic dysfunction, as well as laryngeal injury, were common from intubation. But there were also cognitive and mental health impairments, as well as barriers to meaningful life. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in neurological manifestations. We'll have a talk after this on neurological manifestations. But this brain fog, heart damage, are really lingering impacts that are beginning to alarm many of us. So this is some of the proposed definitions that exist out there. The first one is that of a post-acute COVID. And we call post-acute COVID as this persistence of symptoms extending beyond three weeks after initial symptoms. And then chronic COVID as persistent symptoms extending beyond 12 weeks after initial symptoms. And you can see there's some rationale for that and and some ways to think about it. So CDC and ID Week this 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 abstract. That tries to define the syndrome, right? You have acute infection that we all understand. <clears throat> you have post acute hyperinflammatory illnesses, and then you have the late sequelae. And when you look at the numbers, you know, when they presented this, there were only 8.5 million cases in the US. Now we're close to 26 million cases in the US. But think about it, even if 10% of people develop late sequelae, if you're close to 30 million Americans, you're talking about 3 million people that are going to have this chronic sequela, chronic syndrome of COVID. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the neurological, cardiovascular, and, and renal manifestations. So what happens at the level of the heart? Well, at the level of the heart, primarily myocarditis and ventricular arrhythmias are the common manifestations. The pathogenesis could be direct invasion by the virus, inflammation, and it's probably thought to be one thing of the ACE2 receptors that does this. And I think the big question is: Will this lead to heart failure as a result in the future? So here's one study. In this one study, they did cardiac tissue from 39 consecutive autopsy cases, and they could document the presence of the virus in 61% of those. And, and if the viral load was above a thousand, you can even see more. And the cytokine response was thought to be play an important part. And when they compared 15 patients without cardiac dysfunction with patients with more than a thousand copies. They showed that no inflammatory cells infiltrate or difference in leukocyte numbers for high-power fields. Here's a study from Germany, 100 patients in which they performed cardiac MRIs. And there was cardiac involvement in 78% of patients and evidence of ongoing myocardial inflammation. So this suggests that there is ongoing myocardial damaging as a result of COVID. Unfortunately, this was not a randomized sample, so it may be biased towards those that have cardiac findings. And finally, there's this other study showing in, in, in young adults, this are competitive athletes, who none have been hospitalized with COVID, but 46% had evidence of myocarditis or prior myocardial injury by cardiac MRI that was performed after they had a positive test. So persistent cardiac abnormalities identify not only the elderly, but also in those with, with, who are young. How about the lungs? Well, chronic cough, fibrotic lung disease, bronchitis, and pulmonary vascular disease is an important manifestation, and the pathogenesis here is probably an inflammatory response. And again, you know, I'm, I'm reminding that the lung only knows one way to heal, and that is the fibrosis. So they have a lot of damage to the lung, you'll have fibrosis. And I've heard now of several patients that require lung transplantation after severe COVID. There's also, of course, the the issue of thrombolytic disease, who may be complicating the process. But what, are we going to see an increase in COPD as a result? Are we going to see an increase in pulmonary fibrosis, as it was said? This is one interesting study in which they looked at what were the sequelae at at the level of the lung. And obviously, the acute manifestations, we know about them. There are pneumonia, ARDS, hypoxiavectory failure. But post-acute manifestations included primarily a decrease in DLCO. This is the capacity of of CO, of of, uh, carbon monoxide and 49% also having minute respiratory muscle strength. And if you follow them three months after the diagnosis, you still have 75% with decreased DLCO and 71% with radiographic evidence of increased thickening of fibrosis. So when you think about the lung sequelae and you compound them with the cardiovascular comorbidity, I think you can begin to see that there could be a persistent decline in pulmonary function and cardiac function that had has could have significant consequences. Again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the brain. There'll be a talk dedicated to the brain, but obviously, this is a very troubling area that we're all very concerned about. Mm-hmm. How about the kidney? Well, you know, acutely we see renal failure, but you can also see proteinuria, and there is inflammation. There's direct viral invasion of the kidney cells with infection of the ACE2 receptors. And will there be a, a long-term need for CR chronic, re, replace, uh, chronic renal replacement therapy in patients with with with, uh, with uh, post COVID? Does COVID cause diabetes? Well, we know that diabetes is associated with an increased risk of severe COVID, but nuanced diabetes, including DKA and hyperosmolar coma, have been observed now in patients with COVID. And there's ACE two receptors present in the pancreatic guidelines, island cells. So there's likely a diabetogenic effect of COVID-19. And in fact, there's a co- covid DAB project that is a registry project that is actually looking at this and trying to develop more data on whether COVID and diabetes are related in a bi-directional way. And there appears to be more recent data suggesting that that, is, that indeed is the case. Finally, I wanna talk about emotional health and well-being. You know, are we at risk of a global mental health and behavioral crisis during the sheer number of COVID patients. And I think, you know, it's not just COVID, but it's a syndrome of isolation, of, of, of fatigue, of stigma, and all those things of, of, you know, the financial losses that people are having that could all have significant consequences for patients. And it's because it the diagnosis of COVID and the subsequent need for physical distance and has been associated with feelings of isolation and loneliness COVID-related stigma has become pervasive and can result in, in a sense of helplessness. There's also an increased support of lingering malaise and exhaustion, very similar to chronic fatigue syndrome that gives patients with, with, with to a degree of physical disability and emotional disturbance. And finally, individuals recovering from COVID are at great, greater risk of depression, anxiety, PTSD, and substance use disorders. So as you can see from this article published in Lancet, uh, infectious disease, there's some long list of research needs around, around COVID, along, long COVID. And in fact, the NIH has recently put a group together precisely to start develop a research agenda into how better explain and understand, uh, the, the the, the syndrome, but also to look at potential therapies that we may utilize in, in the not too distant future. As I said, uh, together with, uh, pre-Milani, uh, Lauren Collins and I wrote this piece a couple months ago in, in, for JAMA talking about the long-term health, health consequences of COVID. And, uh, and we, we really think that you need long-range longitudinal observational studies and clinical trials to elucidate this health consequence attributable to COVID and how does it compare to other serious illness. And it begins to remind me of what we did in HIV early in the HIV epidemic when we established the MAX cohort you know, the multi-center cohort study, in which, you know, um, MSMs with and without HIV were followed. And a lot of the data out of the long-term consequences of HIV has actually come out of those studies. So those cohort studies are probably gonna be part of what the NIH does in the not too distant future. So in conclusion, acute COVID symptomatic adults, about 35% did not return to the usual state of health two to three weeks after testing. And among persons aged 18 to 34 with no chronic medical conditions, one in five have not returned to the usual state of health after COVID. If patients have recovered from COVID, 87.4% report persistence of at least one symptom, symptom, in particular fatigue and dyspnea. And 78% of patients in an observational cohort have recovered from COVID, had cardiac MRI findings suggest their cardiac involvement, and in 60% there's ongoing myocardial inflammation. And finally, one third of patients recovering from COVID report lingering neurological and psychological manifestations. <laughs> so likely large number of patients will experience long-term sequelae of COVID. Outpatient post-COVID clinics are opening in many localities where large outbreaks have occurred and take care of this patient. And But it is imperative that the care of this vulnerable population take a multidisciplinary approach and I think there's something we've developed in HIV that's multidisciplinary approaches that really transform therapy. And I think there's a lot to be said in a similar way for, for COVID. And we can integrate a thoughtful research agenda into the care and avoid health system fragmentation as a way to do a comprehensive study of the long-term consequence of COVID and the multiple organ system and, and long-term dysfunction. And this will be an opportunity to effectively and systematically conduct studies of therapeutic interventions that it will help to mitigate the adverse physical and mental health effects of hundreds, if not thousands, or not even millions of people who are going to recover from COVID and who are going to have significant impairments and long term consequences. And with that, Susan, I'll end and happy to answer any questions.
0: Thanks so much, Carlos. That was a fantastic uh, overview of a very challenging topic. Um, we have a number of questions that have come in. The first is, um, what do we know about uh, COVID uh, long-term complications in children, if anything?
1: Well, we don't know a lot. Uh, as I said, if you go to that slide that CDC developed for the syndrome, they put, you know, we know kids develop the kids developed the, some of the kids developed the, the, this inflammatory syndrome, hyperimmune inflammatory syndrome, but we don't really know. There's not enough data to look at long-term consequences. And, and obviously something that needs to be done, in my mind, from talking to colleagues, I think one of the most important long-term consequences of, of COVID in children and is not only of having COVID, but the COVID situation is, is a mental health consequence. and in depression and isolation and other uh, mental health consequences that we're going to have to pay attention to.
0: Um, one person asked if the individuals with long-term consequences might have persistent viremia in some hidden reservoirs, or if this is just if it really is felt that they've cleared the virus, but they... Uh, have these long-term consequences uh, persisting despite uh, lack of viremia?
1: I think there's no viremia. There's this is lack of viremia. This is the, the virus could have caused infection in the heart and caused inflammation, but then the virus dies and it's the inflammatory component that is causing the damage. So it's a combination of inflammation and, and healing that then leads to the problem, like in the lungs, fibrosis. Can so it's different from, from HIV where you have a chronic resistant viral infection. That's yeah. not the case in COVID.
0: Yeah. Can, can you speak at all to therapeutic interventions for symptomatic patients? Um, do, we, do we have much available to us at this point?
1: And our- we, don't, we don't, and, and that's what, as part of the NIH research agenda, is to develop a research agenda of what are the kind of therapeutic interventions. And as you know uh, from, uh, from uh, uh, Lyme and chronic fatigue and, and you know, a lot of those syndromes, I think the research agenda was not well-developed, and we, we sort of suffered from that. So I think it's going to be really important that a re- that thoughtful research agenda be developed here so when you look at different interventions, you can see what happened.
0: Yeah. Um, one person asked if there was persistent muscle weakness that's separate from uh, hospitalization and ICU attributable weakness.
1: Is, is there? Yeah, there is. There is. And, and that, that, I think, is what's interesting, right? We all know about this post-ICU syndrome that people develop, but this is different. This patient's complaint of, of a muscle fatigue. And, and as I said from the description, that, uh, that, that vignette that I read from, from Paul Garner, you know, he talks about this feeling his muscles like being injected, like, like almost having burning inside the muscles.
0: Um, one person was asking if there's any molecular mimicry at play that you might be concerned about with me, um, the mRNA preventive strategies. Uh, and I guess the question is: Do we know anything about breakthrough infections in vaccinees? They're so fr- infrequent at this point, but whether or not those prevent uh, long-term sequelae of COVID. No, that's
1: that's a really good consequence. We don't, and and, and obviously, all, all of us working in vaccines are really interested in seeing does the vaccine really prevent infection? Because you know we we have all been concerned that if you develop uh, if you develop. Uh, uh, <coughs> Uh, infection on a vaccine, you may not develop symptoms, but you can still develop long-term sequelae. And I think that's one of the concerns that everybody has. Yeah. And Um, I think those those are really important questions to answer going forward. And that's why CDC is incredibly interested in trying to understand who goes on, who has, uh, you know, who has documented, if you have well-documented infection after two doses of vaccine and, and, and several weeks gone by, I mean, a true Vaccine failure to really look at those strains and look at those individuals very carefully.
0: There were questions about whether you actually require a SARS CoV 2 uh, documented diagnosis in order to diagnose this long term syndrome and if all of the attention that's being paid in the media might lead people to have increased reporting of symptoms. Do you have any thoughts about that?
1: You know, no, I don't. Uh, but I would tell you, I mean, the syndrome is, is real, I've seen it. And, uh, and yes, you may, you know, I guess, I guess what could happen is let's suppose somebody shows up in clinic and is fatigued and it's tired, this, that, and the other. I think the problem that I can see having is you, you can say, well, this person has, uh, could have chronic post, post, you know, long COVID syndrome, chronic COVID. So then you wouldn't be able to test them with PCR because your virus is long gone, but you've got a serology and serology is going to be positive. And I think you may attribute the syndrome to COVID when, in fact, the reason for the fatigue could be the patient has cancer or something else. And I worry that there may be a combination of either overdiagnosis or misdiagnosis because we're going to be using serology. Where there's going to be so many people who, with past infection that don't have this that I think there's going to be a lot of anchoring bias going on.
0: And conversely, are there specific, are there recommended screening tests that you would recommend for people for COVID survivors, like echoes, chest x-rays, PFTs, those sorts of things?
1: No, at this point in time, if there's no symptoms, I'm not recommending that people do that. But, you know, when, when I've seen, I recently saw a patient that had fairly, you know, continuous tachycardia and cannot go up the stairs like he used to, and he's like 12 weeks, the first 13, 14 weeks out. know, I did recommend that he get an echo and he get a cardiac MRI. Yeah.
0: Um, there were some, uh, questions about, uh, how we might study this in healthy athletes in particular, that this, what you raised about the really shocking numbers of, uh, healthy athletes who had cardiac complications. Does that fit into your, uh, research agenda that you're recommending? Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of interest in this and obviously the, uh, uh, you know, through the NCAA that I've been working with, the NCAA and colleges and looking at sports athletes, there's a lot of interest in looking into this, because obviously there's a lot of concern about, you know, having a young athlete, healthy individuals, develop chronic, develop COVID, and then being able to, not being able to continue, you know, playing or doing whatever they were doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Someone asked if there were persistent symptoms of elevated inflammatory indicators or persistent microvascular hyper- hypercoagulopathy that may be uh, some of the underlying etiology of some of these
1: complications. Yeah, That's being looked at. I, I think the data that I've seen so far is not conclusive.
0: So, Carlos, if you were going to develop a, a research agenda around uh, this COVID long-haul syndrome, what would that look like? Can you lay out for us what the components of such a research agenda might be?
1: I mean, I think I think it'll be really important to have, to establish cohort studies, to establish a series of of, of sort of routine ways in which you're gonna evaluate those patients in which you make sure you have, you include participants that are both young and old, that are both asymptomatic and, 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 and hospitalized. And then you develop a, a standardized way, like we've done in HIV, right? Standardized testing, regular testing of, you know, CTs or or MRIs or cardiac MRIs, echoes, et cetera, and and you establish and then you develop a, a and you look at inflammatory markers and you look at at uh, and you probably store some cells to see what in the future may come up. But I think you really need. I think cohorts are going to be the answer here in trying to really define the syndrome, as opposed to just make it, uh, you know, once and once kind of a impression. Uh huh.
0: Um. uh i guess there was just uh, some discussion about how l- the the intersection between long haulers and impacts on frailty and uh if you think that uh th- it was kind of a natural progression from this yeah. discussion of it, frailty it
1: could, it, that- it could really be you know i mean again a lot of older individuals that i've seen and many of you may have seen older individuals go to the icu or get COVID, and then they just never recover they they go on to have a significant frailty syndrome that then, you know, keeps on returning them to the hospital with other problems. Okay.
0: Um, so one person asked about use of uh, all kinds of other uh, agents that are uh, are being tried because people get desperate, ivermectin, Welbutrin, colchicine, aspirin. Um, do you – is there anything that you recommend at this point um, for long-haul syndrome um, or – uh, is it's really just needs to be part of the research agenda? I
1: think it needs to be a part of the research agenda. I think at this point in time, I don't think there's evidence of any of that be, being abused.
0: And has there been any evidence that monoclonal antibodies have any impact on the uh, long term outcomes?
1: You know, good question. I haven't looked at that. That's a really good question. I haven't uh-huh. looked at it.
0: Um, so, uh, are there predisposing conditions that seem to? Increase the risk of long-term COVID. Uh, you made the case that people don't necessarily
1: have to you know, have a lot of comorbidities. Not, not really. Could be young, could be old. I, I really haven't seen anything that that, that clearly says that.
0: Uh huh. And are, are there any phenotypes in particular, or, or is it just really any? Uh, you may get any combination of these long-term. Yeah, uh, yeah
1: com- I think I think it's, it's pretty much any phenotype. I mean, yeah. I've seen people who are previously healthy not do well and then the opposite, right?
0: Yeah. And any sense of the the uh, how, just how long this lasts and if there are sort of indications
1: of when? Well, I mean, clearly, it's not, it's not chronic forever. I mean, we've seen some people develop this and eventually go on to recover. But the question is, how long will it last? We don't know because we haven't seen this long enough, right?
0: And. Are we seeing any different patterns globally? This is being reported elsewhere in the world? It's,
1: we've seen it. in China has some reports that I'm looking at. There's, some, there's a recent report from China that looked at long COVID. So I think we're seeing it everywhere.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, and no differences in the patterns? No, it
1: looks pretty similar.
0: Okay. Um, well, this has been really interesting uh presentation. Um, It's one that raises all kinds of challenges and uh, questions, and it sounds like there really does need to be a very robust research agenda to address this. It does tie into what our next uh, presentation is going to be about. Um, You did get a lot of compliments on uh, terrific talk, and um, uh, so what I'm going to do now is turn it over to Paul to move on to our final presentation. Thank you.